Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. And uh, real quick, just want to put this out there for everybody who usually watches on YouTube. You might have noticed something last week, and that was that we didn't have a YouTube video, but we had a podcast. Or you might not have noticed that at all, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And the reason for that is because I forgot to push the record button on my phone, but I pushed it on my, my mixer. So I have the audio, I just have the video. Uh, but anyway, so last week, if you want to usually watch, but you want to catch up, just go listen to my podcast. And if you're not subscribed, subscribe and uh, leave a review and share with your friends. And that is my shameless plug of the day. Um, all right, y'all. So today, um, it's a kind of an exciting part of this study. We're actually moving to a new passage, kind of. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, for anybody who's actually read Man and Woman, He Created Them, you know that when JP2 switches his kind of insights or his, his focus on Matthew 5, namely, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, he does it for like a split second, and then he goes back to the beginning again. Um, and I'll explain more why about that kind of throughout today's podcast. Um, and I had to make a decision. I'm like, okay, am I going to go back to Genesis and talk more about that, even though there's a lot of really beautiful, insightful stuff? Or do I just need to stick with Matthew 5 and kind of just do one or two episodes just on what he says about that? Um, and I chose the latter. Uh, like I've said a few times in this series, we just don't have the time to talk about every single thing Pope St. John Paul II uh, talk about. He, he's just a really smart dude, and he has a lot to say on, like, not a lot of words. So, once again, uh, if you've read it, then you know that. And if you haven't, you should go read Man When We Created Them. It's a really brilliant book. Uh, or, yeah, check out Christopher West stuff or Jason Everett um, or... Michael Wolstein, um in his book uh, on it. I mean, there's a there's just so many good books on theology of the body. There's also a lot of garbage ones though. So if you have any questions, just let me know. Um, okay, so in today's episode, uh, we shift into a new section of man when he created them in theology of the body. And we focus on Matthew five. So I want to say a few things about Matthew five in general, but before we do that, I need to give you the Greek word of the day. We're back to Greek because we're back in the New Testament. And the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. Even though some scholars speculate that Matthew was actually originally written in Hebrew and then later translated to Greek because there's a lot of Hebraic uh, kind of phrases within the text that are kind of transliterated. Um, but that being said, we have literally no evidence of that. But I kind of like to believe that it, it was true. Like, I'd be, it'd be dope if like Matthew was written in Hebrew and then we just lost the, the documents because Hebrew wasn't a common enough language, so it kept getting translated into Greek. And like the papyrus scrolls got like disintegrated or something like that. I don't know. It's kind of a cool thing to think about. It doesn't really matter because we saw the text of Matthew. Um, but it's Matthew 5. And so for anybody who doesn't know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the part of Matthew. It's called the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is arguably Jesus' most famous sermon. It's uh, kind of, you can compare it to the Sermon on the Plain that we hear about in Luke's Gospel. Um, a lot of similar themes, a lot of similar passages. A lot of you know scholars will speculate. Well, like, well, is the Sermon on the Plain? Is it you know did it happen on at the same time? Is like is this the same sermon that Jesus just gave you know you know one time, and then Matthew said it was on a mountain for theological reasons, and Luke said it was on a plain for theological reasons, or blah 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 blah. Um, I mean, my personal opinion, 
just as somebody who studied the arguments and stuff, um, there, there's a good reason to believe that not everything that was said in the Sermon on the Mount happened all at once. Um, that being said, it could have happened all at once, and it doesn't really affect the fact that Jesus did say these things. Um, I think if I had to like pick a hill to die on, I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus gave two different sermons at two different places because we know Jesus gave a lot of sermons in his three-year ministry. And I wouldn't be surprised as somebody who's like just gives talks a lot. Um, I have certain things I like to talk about. I have certain things that I talk about a lot. And if you've been following me for a while, you've probably heard me say hermeneutical gift like a ton, right? Um, and so Jesus, he's proclaiming the gospel of, uh, of the kingdom of God. And so it's not really surprising that he would have said some of the same things in different places. Um, but anyway, focusing on just on Matthew in particular, this is the Sermon on the Mount. We know it starts with the Beatitudes. And then a really, really important thing uh, to know, just basically before kind of diving in to anything with the Sermon on the Mount or anything even with Jesus' law in particular, view of the Old Testament, is actually Matthew 5, 17, 18 and on. We read, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so just as just a quick aside, Jesus didn't hate the Old Testament, right? Jesus didn't like hate the law, right? It was given by by him really, as the word. Um, that being said, he recognized that some of the law, which was allowed by him, wasn't directly given by him. Namely, like he says, uh, the law on divorce and remarriage. It, was, it says, you know, because of the hardness of your heart, we al I allowed this as God to happen, but in the beginning it was not so. That's what we just talked about for the past few weeks. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this, depiction of Christ's fulfillment of the law or like a super justification of the law. So in the Old Testament and even in Jesus's day, there was a lot of times when the Israelites or the leaders or the priests or whoever it was, they would read the law and they would kind of find the loophole in the law, right? They cared more about the letter of the law than actually living out justice in their hearts, right? We hear about this in the prophets a lot, actually. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's coming to get deeper than the letter of the law because he didn't like the way that a lot of the scribes and Pharisees were interpreting it because it was just very shallow surface level. And we'll get to more about that in particular in this passage in a second. Um, and so it's just really important to know that this is like the first time in Matthew, at least, that Jesus is outright saying, I am God. And he doesn't say you know, ego a me, that happens in John. It's a Greek for I am who am. Um, but what's he doing? He is saying that within himself, he has the authority to redefine the law, if you will, or to make the law deeper or to, to not improve the law, but to deepen it, right? To fulfill it, like he says. And that's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says like, the scribes and Pharisees were like, dude, you spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. All the scribes would do would it be interpret the law. They wouldn't, you know, say they have authority to 
change the law or deepen the law necessarily. But that's what Jesus is saying, right? It just, you know, in, in the passage right above the one we're about to read on anger, it says, amen, amen, I say to you, you have heard that it was said you shall not kill, but I say you can't even be angry at your brother, right? So Jesus is on a kind of an ethical level, realizing that all of these outward sins that we do start in interiorly. They start in our hearts, right? They start within us in our mind and our will. And it's only after they've been dwelling for a long time, usually, that they then manifest themselves through concrete actions. So Jesus is saying, it's, you can, it doesn't matter if on the surface you don't do anything bad. If your soul is corrupt, if your soul is ugly, you're not living to Christian perfection. St. Augustine actually says about the Sermon on the Mount, if, if, you, if you're curious about what it means to live a Christian life, if you're like, man, I wish I had some practical things like practical ways to live my Christian life. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then spend the rest of your life trying to do them. Because all of the, all the spiritual theologians, all the moral theologians will recognize, they'll point to this, and, they, and you know, because when you read it, you're like, dude, is this even possible? And they'll say, well, no, it's not really possible, like by yourself. Of course not. But it's through the grace of God that we can do these things. So the, the passage on the Sermon on the Mount that JP2 zooms in on is the passage on lust, right? So we'll read it real quick and, and then we'll, we'll get to talking about it. So we read Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Epithemia is that word for lust. Did I say the Greek word of the day? I think I mentioned to it. Did I skip it over? Anyway, that was the word, epithemia. Um, <laughs> uh, epithemia is, is that is, uh, can be translated as desire or lust, right? Desire or lust. So once again, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, Let's, let's talk about uh, epithemia first, right? JP2 talks about it too, and we'll get to it in a second. Epithemia, this, this idea of desire, right? So desire, the word epithemia, can we go one of two ways? In a positive sense, and even JP2 talks about desire, or even the sexual urge, he calls it, is good. It is good. It is not bad, uh, especially within, you know, a courting or spousal relationship, right? Uh, when, you're, when you're dating somebody, when you're engaged to somebody, you should have a deep desire to love them, to be with them, right? Um, that, that's a good thing. It, it, and a lot of the times, you know, even JPT talks about this in Love and Responsibility, that desire leads men to be better men a lot of the time, right? To be a chivalrous, virtuous man. Uh, in the sexual urge within marriage, that's a good thing doesn't mean it's always there, right? But it's a good thing. The sexual urge is a gift from God. Um, and on a very natural, just like, you know, anthropological level, it helps, you know, to bring about offspring, right? But then on a spiritual level, on a moral level, it, the sexual urge is amazing. It's a gift from God, you know, that anybody who's married for a long time knows that you can come together as man and wife and not always have this like deep, you know, intense burning sexual urge, but it doesn't mean you, you can't come together and remind yourself of your marital vows, right? Because that's, that's what coming together in the marital act is. It's a renewal of your vows through your body, right? You say the words 
on the altar on your day of your marriage. And then for the rest of your life, you renew your vows through your body, through what you live out in your marriage. And so the way that JP2 says that epithemia turns bad and lustful is what he calls reductive meaning. And it's a quote I want to share from that. So the reductive way of, of desiring, right? So this is what he says. He actually says this uh, in, in a translator's note. So here you read. Desire in a negative sense arises when a man or a woman fails to see the full attractiveness of the other person and reduces it to the attractiveness of sexual pleasure alone. It is this isolation of sexual desire that gives rise to the vice of lust. Okay, so we're kind of defining our terms here, right? So you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent or in a reductive way, in a lustful way, has already committed adultery with her in his heart, right? So once again, that reductive meaning of sexual desire or desire in general is when, once again, it's after the fall, right? So you look at another person, not as a person, right? Not as somebody who might have a beautiful body, but rather as something that is just a body there for your own gratification, right? You, don't, you could care less about what their name is. You can care less about their history, their past, their wounds, their, their joys, their sufferings. You can care less about all that. All you're seeing is their body. All you're seeing is what their body could do for you, right? So that's, that's the reductive meaning of desire, Right? The positive meaning, like I said, is you can desire somebody, you, know, you desire your spouse, you desire you know, union, that sexual urge. It can be good, but it's not just that you desire the other person for their body. Is, no, you desire to be with the person themselves, right? Not just their bodies. So once again, desire, good. Sexual urge, amazing. Yet if we fall into this reductive trap of desire, that's when lust comes into play. So... The next thing we have to define is is adultery, right? What is adultery? I think this is, I remember as a kid hearing this word a lot, like in scripture, uh, and, and when they read the when they read it at mass, but it was never really talked about in the, on, the, on the homilies or anything like that. And so it took me actually like a long time, probably an embarrassing long time, to actually like really understand what this word meant, right? And, and like you kind of intuit it like, oh, it's something bad that adults can do right but like what what is it right um and so jp2 actually defines it for us because he's awesome and he's jp2 and he defines terms and i think it's really important to define our terms so we're all saying the same thing so in this text adultery in his heart so we have to define adultery what does it meant by adultery so adultery according to jp2 is what a man commits if he unites in this way, right, the sexual act, with a woman who is not his wife. Adultery is also what a woman commits if she unites in this way with a man who is not her husband. One must draw the conclusion that adultery in the heart that Jesus talks about, committed by a man when he looks at a woman to desire her, signifies a clearly defined interior act, we are dealing with a desire directed, in this case, by the man towards a woman who is not his wife, for the sake of uniting with her as if she were. That is, to use once again the words of Genesis 2.24 in such a way that the two are one flesh. 
Such a desire as an interior act expresses itself through the sense of sight, that is, with a look, as in the case of David and Bathsheba, which we're going to talk about in a second. The relation of desire with the sense of sight was particularly emphasized in Christ's words. So what does that mean exactly? So this is uh, really important to, to understand. You know, I think a lot of men in particular, and women do, women struggle with this too, but um, men in particular are very visual people, right? Very visual of the two uh, sexes. Um, and so I, I, I've counseled a lot of men that, you know, they think the instant that a thought of a woman crosses their mind that they've sinned, right? Um, but JB2 distinguishes this. No, 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 it's an interior action. Because remember, sin has to be a choice, right? And there's like willed and unwilled sin, right? Willed and unwilled venial sin in particular. Mortal sin can never be unwilled. Um, but venial sin in particular can be willed or unwilled. Sometimes you can just accidentally goof and mess up and fall short and you didn't really intend to do what you just did. Then you have like willed venial sins where like you knew you that somebody made you mad so you cussed them out. Like you chose to cuss them out, right? Um, and so within this within this act that JP2 is talking about, it's, it's an interior action. So you are willing it. So, right, so somebody, if you're, you know, I'm a man, so I'm speaking in terms of a man, a beautiful woman crosses your path. You seeing the beautiful woman obviously is not a sin, right? And then let's say the next thing that happens is a thought occurs to you, maybe an, an impure thought occurs to you, right? And this is when the interior action is made. Do you choose to continue to think about the thought that you couldn't control coming overhead. Think of it like, you know, I had a priest say to me one time in confession, think of them as the clouds passing over the sun and sometimes they come and all you can do, all you have to do is kind of ignore them. That thoughts that you, that you can't control them all the time, right? Or really ever, a lot of the times. Um, and so, right, the beautiful woman you see. Maybe an impure thought comes to mind, maybe it doesn't, praise God, but maybe it does. And then this is when the interior action comes into place, right? You choose to continue to think about this woman in this reductive way. And usually it means you choose to continue to look at her in a reductive way as just a piece of meat, essentially, right? And so that is when sin comes into play. That's when you, conf you should confess lustful thoughts, right? That's when you should confess, you know, let's be farther for I've sinned. It's been blah, blah, blah since my last confession. I've been really struggling with lustful thoughts, in particular this one time, you know, fill in the blank. Um, why? Because your will was involved. Your intellect and your will was involved, right? You thought it and you chose to continue to think about it even though you knew you shouldn't be, right? So you have reduced this other person as a means to an end, as something, as something to bring you pleasure, right? Even if you don't fall into like masturbation or something like that, even if it doesn't even go that far, it can still be a sin, right? Because you're choosing to think about it. You've committed adultery in your heart, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. And so JP2 then uh, has to define really what, what, what does it mean by heart? Because uh, in like scholastic tradition and Catholic tradition, we, we, we distinguish between the, the, the intellect and the will, right? Uh, the intellect, namely your brain, your will is your actions, what you choose to do. You can know something up here, but not choose to do it, right? You know, uh, St. Paul talks about this, you know, uh, you know, woe unto me, you know, I, I do the very things I know I shouldn't do, and I, I don't do the things I know I want to do, right? It's that battle between the intellect and the will. And that's why our intellect must train our will to choose and to act according to the good. And so, for JP2, he just reminds us that uh, really in the Old Testament, whenever 
we hear the word hearts and even in the new testament because they're they're jews right so they know the old testament there isn't this clear distinction between intellect and will that that is really an influence of uh greek philosophy which helps us to define things right but for for the hebrews for the israelites uh the when it says heart it really means like the whole person right intellect and will like their very core the the, the you know what makes them who they are right so it's, it's not the heart isn't just the will it's not just the intellect it's it's all of you so that's why this when you look at a woman with lust in your heart right or sorry when you look at a woman with lust you've already committed adultery in your heart, that, that is within your very self. Every part of you has just sinned, right? Because if, if a beautiful woman passes, you see her, a thought comes to you and you say, you know, come Holy Spirit, I don't want to think about that. Please bless that woman. Boom, you didn't commit a sin. If anything, you just grew in virtue, right? And, but if, the, if it happens, you see the beautiful woman, you think about it and you choose to continue to think about it and use, looking at that woman as an object to be used, your, your whole self, your intellect and your will is then involved and you've sinned. You've committed adultery in your heart. And this is why uh, JP2 then kind of has to pivot and he goes back to the beginning to, he talks about the threefold concupiscence. And in particular, he talks about uh, in 1 John uh, 2.16, which I'll just read as a reference. We're not going to dive super into this right now. We've talked about it in podcasts before, but this threefold concupiscence, right? So in 1 John, oh, sorry, I totally flipped to the wrong part of my Bible. 1 John 2.16 or 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is when JP2 starts talking about the historical man and also the man of concupiscence, right? And it's just important to know concupiscence, right, is the effect of the fall um, or the, the state of that, you know, post-fallen that we're all in, that we suffer with concupiscence. And it's namely talking about this threefold lust, right? The, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and, and the pride of life, right? And, and this is what, you know, Eve saw when she saw the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, she saw that the food looked good, looked pretty. It says, oh, it probably tastes really good. And it has a desire to make one wise, right? So pride. And so, uh, once again, JP2 is going to start talking about this historical man, but the historical man is the man of concupiscence, right? We, we don't know. We don't have any historical evidence of what it was really like before the fall other than scripture, right? Theologians have speculated about different, way, different things, um, different uh, attitudes that probably Adam had or different abilities even that Adam had. Um, but historically, historical man is the man of concupiscence, is the man who struggle with this threefold less, just like in all of the Old Testament, right? And so why then, we, we to, JP2 turns to this question, we turn with him now, why then does Jesus talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount? Because it was already in the Old Testament, isn't in, in Deuteronomy 5.18, right? We talk about, we're, we read in the, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, you know, you shall not covet the, another man's wife, right? You shall not commit adultery. Um, and adultery was actually like punishable by it's like stoning and death, right? That's why Jesus, uh, the woman caught in adultery and all those people had stones and Jesus doesn't appeal. This is JP2, this is not Chase, so I'm paraphrasing. Um, Jesus doesn't appeal to the law because the law said that they were just in what they were doing. Rather, he, he appeals to their conscience, right? He says, the, the, him who does not have sin, let him cast the first stone. Um, so it's in the law, right? Adultery is punishable by death. Uh, but why does Jesus need to bring this up? Why does he need to deepen it? Well, 
to a certain extent, you can kind of understand the confusion of the Israelites, right? Why? Because if you read the, if you read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and if you read uh, the patriarchs in particular, uh, it wasn't terribly uncommon, right, to have multiple wives, right, to have multiple wives. I mean, Abraham uh, couldn't have a son with Sarah, so Sarah gave him Hagar as a slave. And now Hagar wasn't like, his wife proper, um, but like essentially she was, right? Like he didn't call her a wife, or at least the text doesn't. Um, we also read about this kind of, which is crazy, after the Pentateuch, or yeah, yeah, after the Pentateuch, after the Decalogue, um, with David and uh, Solomon. You know, we, we read that they had a lot of wives, right? And Solomon in particular married for political gain, which actually eventually led to his fall. And so uh, we have this weird understanding of what adultery actually means right and so like i said it, it's this um this idea where adultery is, is purely related to wives right so there's another quote i'll share with you guys real quick uh, about this in particular so jp2 talks about this he says in these laws in the old testament right adultery is understood above all and perhaps exclusively as the violation of a man's property right regarding every woman who is his legal wife, usually one among many. Adultery is not understood by contrast as it appears from the point of view of the monogamy established by the creator. So he references the beginning. So once again, polygamy wasn't viewed as adultery, right? It was only when you had marital relationships well, with somebody who wasn't your spouse, um, that it was considered adultery, right? But polygamy wasn't. So to a certain extent, you can kind of understand why some of the Israelites were confused. Like, I mean, what, what really is adultery, right? Um, because Christ always appeals to the beginning, right? Because he says all of these things, polygamy, um, he says, you know, divorce, all these things. They, it was just because of the hardness of your heart. In the beginning, it was not so. God made Eve for Adam, just one, right? Just one, because in the beginning, it was not so. So once again, Christ, he didn't want to just obey the letter of the laws. This is super arbitrary. Like, well, how do you find adultery, right? Like, can I have multiple wives? Can I divorce? Blah, 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 blah. No, he wanted, he wanted justice to go deeper. He wanted justice to go into the heart, right? Um, and so we're going to talk about this more next time on the podcast. Uh, we might do one or two more episodes on, on this passage in particular, kind of following JP2's line of thought. Uh, but just like a word of encouragement to everyone listening who struggles with adultery in the heart, who struggles with sexual thoughts um you know have custody of the eyes custody of the eyes is one of the things that uh, has helped me out tremendously uh, with all this since i first heard about it um and custody of the eyes you know it's, it's essentially you know if you spot somebody who's beautiful one just thank god for beauty right thank god for creating beautiful people um but also if you know you might be tempted to fall into that uh, lustful thought then control where your eyes go Right, you can't help if somebody just walks across your line of sight, but then once you notice that you might be tempted, control where your eyes go. Right, look the other way, look up, look down, look, you know, blah blah blah. Um, look in their eyes, right? <laughs> Don't look down. Um, so having custody of the eyes, um, it's uh, especially if, if I have any uh, listeners at college campuses, y'all. I remember how brutally hard it was walking around college campus, like. You know, I felt bad for all these girls who just couldn't afford full clothing, right? They clearly were too poor to afford full clothing. Um, and so maybe I should have donated or sent them to Goodwill or something. But anyway, 
um, you know, wear a hat, you know, like put the brim, brim down low, have custody of your eyes. Um, we uh, give a whole talk on that. Um, and so once again, we'll, we'll kind of jump, jump back to this in the next podcast. Um, and uh, there's a lot more to be said about it. And once again, we skipped a whole bunch. Uh, but once again, Christ wants more than just letter of the law obedience. He wants super abundant righteousness. He wants justice to go further above and beyond just the letter of the law, but to, to penetrate into the hearts of people. So we're talking about more of that next time on Catholics with Bibles. Until then, God bless. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles on this mini-series on Theology of the Body, Man and Woman, He Created Them. Once again, if you like us, give us a share, give us a review. It helps people to find us on Google and all those other websites and whatnot. So once again, thank you so much for joining us on Catholics with Bibles. We'll see you next time. God bless.